Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. A few years ago, I taught at Forest Lake Academy. This would have been about four to five years ago. And while I was there, there was a sophomore named Caleb Acosta. And a year before I had arrived, his freshman year, he had been diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer. This form of brain cancer has almost a 0% survival rate. And he was 14 years old. He was active in varsity sports. He was active with friends. He was one of the more popular kids in his grade and in his class. He had transcended all of the, uh, the class separation roles and, and as a freshman had friends in all grades. He was an everyman. He was a great kid with a big, beautiful smile on his face. And I met him when I came to teach, and by the time that I had been introduced, he was already wheelchair-bound from chemo treatments and from the aggressive nature of them, he had become weak and frail. This was no longer the varsity sports player. He was still the same happy-go-lucky child, but he was not the same. And I remember his friends all year long, this was one of the biggest things that we dealt with. I remember the entire school 300-some students and, and 80 staff members gathered outside the flagpole and circled and held hands and prayed for him almost on a weekly basis, praying for a miracle. And I watched all year long as Caleb began in his wheelchair to travel from church to church, from school to school, to share his journey, to share his testimony, and to share, and I remember this one specific story that he would share, but there was one night he had a dream, and he, he, he shares this story so well. In fact, you can actually, I think, find online him sharing this story. One night in a dream, he believes that he actually had Jesus and the Holy Spirit appear and talk with him and let him know two things. Number one, everything will be okay. And number two, that he was loved. He would share that story with a smile on his face as his health would proceed to worsen and worsen. And I remember his friends praying endlessly. And then in April of the second semester, he passed away at 15 years old. His friends, I remember sitting in my office. We let them skip class the next day. We let anyone, if they wanted to go to class because they weren't close to him or didn't understand, they were welcome to, but the teachers knew they weren't gonna press anything. No homework was due, no tests were given, and students were able to just meet with staff members, counselors, anyone they wanted to. And I had a group of his friends, closest friends, just angry, angry beyond belief that that all of this prayer, all of this faith, all of these stories they had read that said, if you would just have faith, everything will be fine. 
He'll be healed. We've seen all these healings in Scripture, so why wasn't our friend healed? And unfortunately, some of them never got past that anger. You see, they misunderstood what Caleb knew. That when he received that message that everything will be okay, and it's currently graffitied on a big wall on Forest Lake Academy's campus, and students were able to walk up that year and sign it. So everyone's signature is on that wall in memory of Caleb. When he received that message, everything will be okay. He knew it wasn't about this life. He knew that he was safe for eternity. And he knew that everything, ultimately, will be okay. Some of his friends were able to grasp that after a while. And, and us as staff, we knew what the outcome was going to be. And we knew that the real miracle that had taken place was the transformation of this, this kid that really only cared about friends and sports to now become someone who spoke with more faith than even pastors. More faith than evangelists. More faith then prophets, this, this child spoke with such authority and such hope and such joy in the face of death. We knew that the miracle was his spiritual healing, not his physical. That everyone expected God to show up in one way, and when he did it, they got mad. Because they misunderstood how God was operating. Right now, our culture of miracles filters everything through self. Right now, everything says, what, God, are you doing for me? You see, part of the reason his friends were angered was because they lost a friend. God, you're doing, you need to save him because I don't want to lose my friend. And I get it. I know that feeling. Do not, do not misunderstand me. I know that feeling. But everything is filtered through self. And so here's what happens. We pray when, we met, when we're losing our car keys and we're trying to find them because we're going to be late for work. We pray when we're trying to find our cell phone. We, we pray that we're going to make it safely through traffic. And these aren't bad prayers to pray. But what happens if I show up for prayer meeting or if I show up to church and I share this story of how God answered my prayer and helped me find my car keys? But he wouldn't heal my friend. How odd is it if I share this story and someone else comes and says, hey, we've been trying to have a child for years and it just hasn't worked out and we, we don't know where God is and, and why he's so silent. And then all of a sudden to hear, oh, but he cares more about your car keys. Now, for those of you who are new here, you don't know this about me and I'm not normally this depressing, I promise. And I'm thankful that this never actually happened to me, but I want you to imagine this because this is the most poignant example I can think of. When I was 17, my father died of a heart attack. Now, many people would come up to me and say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm, I, I'm praying for you and your family, and they would share that with me. But imagine, if you will, if someone came up to me and said, wow, I'm so sorry to hear about your father, but at least I have mine. Can you imagine how that would make me feel? And unintentionally we do this in our culture of miracles because we filter them all through me. We filter them all through this window of me. 
And so what I want to do, and I'm not saying that God didn't answer your prayer for your car keys. I'm not saying that God didn't carry you through traffic safely. What I'm saying is there's a time and a place sometimes to share those. But ultimately, I want to discover what the purpose of miracles are so that we can understand when and how they happen. And John 5 gives us a, a great starting point. This is the healing at the pool of Bethesda on Sabbath. And this is one of the scriptures that we use when we talk about being able to do healing ministry on the Sabbath. But there's something really important here that happens that I absolutely love and that I've missed up until just recently. Starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, if you don't know what the pool of Bethesda was, it was a pool in Rome, or in Jerusalem, that, that they believed, it laid still all year long, and then an angel would come down at a time that no one would know, and touch that water, and the water would move. You'd see little ripples come out from the center. And they knew that the first person to touch that water after the water moves, that person would be healed of whatever ailment, whatever sickness, whatever disease they had. They would be immediately healed. And so regularly, throughout day and night, because you never knew the moment, People would be waiting, crowded around this pool, trying to get there first. Everyone looking for that miracle, for me. For me. So Jesus approaches this pool knowing exactly why they're there, knowing exactly what they're looking for. And in verse 3, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been there and been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? This is the very first thing that you need to notice. He did not ask, do you believe in me? He did not ask, do you have faith that you will be healed? Instead, he asks a question that he already knows the answer to. This is like walking into a hospital and saying, do you want to get better? This is essentially what Jesus is doing here. Do you want to be healed? And so the man responds, and I can imagine the man with this, with this kind of annoyed tone in his voice, because he, it's obvious the answer to that question is so obvious, and so he says in verse 7, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. He answers with, yeah, obviously I want to be healed, but it's a little bit difficult. It's like trying to get in the store first on Black Friday. It's just not going to happen. No one's going to pick me up and get me in that water because they want to get there first. But obviously I want to be healed. And so verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now immediately 
this man approaches the Pharisees. They find out that he's been healed on the Sabbath, that he's, that he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And they said, hold on, you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. That's not appropriate. And he tells them what had happened. And they said, okay, well, healing's not okay on the Sabbath either. And so this is one of the first moments in, in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where the Pharisees have decided that they need to kill this blasphemer named Jesus. So Jesus ditches very quickly. He leaves immediately. And here's what's important about this. The fact that he leaves so quickly means that when he showed up and talked to this man and then left, he left a whole crowd of people unhealed. Still stuck and still waiting. Based on what we have from Scripture. He could have, in that time that the man was walking away, he could have healed more, and he probably did. But chances are he did not make it to everyone. On top of this, the one man that he, cho he chose to heal, he did so not on the basis of faith. He healed a man who didn't have any faith that we know of. He was just there. See, normally in the standard that's set in all of the Gospels is your faith has made you well. Because you believed your faith has made you well. But right here, Jesus doesn't even make faith a part of the equation. He just says, hey, would you, would you like to be healed today? And then he heals him. I know of people who have been praying and praying and praying full of faith for years, for decades. I know that because I'm one of them. Praying for God to show up and do something in a certain situation in their lives. And they get mad because they're saying God's not showing up. And then a well-meaning, well-intentioned church member walks up to them and says, well, you just need to have faith. You just need to pray more. If only you're not praying enough. I've been praying for decades. I've been praying for years. I've been praying for months. I've been praying for weeks. I've been waiting, and I've been a faithful member of the church for all my life. And you're going to sit there and invalidate all of that and treat me like I haven't had any. But ultimately... What we have here is a moment in Scripture where Jesus, taking action, had absolutely nothing to do with the level of someone's faith. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus moving and doing a miracle in your life, the norm is that he wouldn't have faith that he will come through. What I am saying is we shouldn't be so quick to judge someone on the level of their faith. That you and I are not the determiners of how much faith someone has. Now, to add further to this, this point, almost every single conversion story I hear, almost every single testimony that I hear, is someone who went through a traumatic experience, and as a result of God saving them from that experience, then they believed. I have a friend who became a pastor after he was involved in gangs all of his life in New Jersey. He was involved in a drive-by shooting where he was the one that was the victim. And he ends up in the hospital and he prays and he realizes that God is the one who has saved him. And then he believes. 
It does not take faith for God to act. And that is one of the hardest things to accept because we've been taught it all of our lives. Now, I'm not saying it's the norm. I believe we should have faith in who God is and what he will do and what he can do. But I want you to understand that the level of your faith is not always tied to his actions. Our faith is not a leash that we can use to pull God in whatever direction we want to. It's not a lasso that we throw at him and, and pull him in and say, God, do something, because I know you can. It is not. What faith does for us is it reminds us that ultimately everything will be okay. That's what faith does. It keeps us tied to Jesus and whatever's going to happen, and it, and it tells us that everything will be okay. That we are not alone. That we're not fighting this battle on our own, but that we are walking with a God who understands everything that we're dealing with and loves us no matter what. So the first thing that I want you to know is that miracles in your life do not always require faith. The second thing I want you to know is this man, for 38 years he was an invalid, but we don't know how long he was by this pool. He could have been there a week, he could have been there a year, he could have been there all 38 years. What we know is that this man did everything in his power for his well-being. I'm not saying Jesus was the last resort. He didn't even know Jesus was a resort at that point. What I am saying is that he took the tools that were available to him, the knowledge that he had, and he applied everything he could to better his circumstances. So the second point this morning is while you are waiting for Jesus to move, in whatever way he is going to, do everything you can. Don't sit idly by, expecting Jesus to set the table for you. You can set the table and Jesus will show up with the meal. Do everything you can while you're waiting. Just like this man waiting every day for his chance, knowing that he was likely never going to be the first one into that water. But hoping and praying, hoping that it would work. The last thing that I want to share with you this morning is in 2 Corinthians 1.20, and you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I just want to give you the verse reference. Paul tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Every single promise to provide, every single promise to show up, every single promise to understand, every single promise to protect finds its yes in Jesus Christ. All of the promises that you cling to, all of them from Jeremiah, from Genesis to Revelation, every single one. So the one I was about to reference, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That finds its yes in Jesus Christ. Every single promise finds its yes in Jesus Christ, which means that the miracle has already happened. That our entire faith is founded on this one miracle that has already happened and is present in our lives every single day. And the miracle is this, that Jesus Christ 
lived, died, and was resurrected so that you and I might have eternal life. And after that resurrection, he doesn't just leave, but rather he is with you every single step of the way. I remember watching a video recently, and I forget what it was, but a character shared a quote, and he said, listen, you never learn anything when you're winning. Most of the time that you and I have either gone, grown the closest to God, understand the most of who he is, is in those moments of hurt and pain and confusion and doubt. Winning doesn't teach us anything which is why we're not the ones that get the victory, Jesus is. And sometimes, if God is just going to remove us from any sort of bad thing to happen, God is just going to say, yeah, I'm never going to let you experience anything bad at all. We don't learn anything. We don't grow. We become stagnant. We don't experience anything new, and we don't learn more of who he is. And in fact, we never see him work, because we never know what he's doing. But as in those moments of hurt, of pain, of confusion, those are the moments that we have the opportunity to grow closer to God. To praise him because the miracle that he is with us, that he understands us, and that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that remains true for eternity now. And I am thankful for it. I am so, so thankful for it. What I believe Jesus did here, what I believe that he's done every single time that he's been involved in a miracle, in a conversion story. The purpose of this miracle was to reveal God. This man now knows who God is. The Pharisees now know who Jesus is. And all of those miracles, all of those answered prayers that you and I have experienced, all of them, reveal God to us. And they serve as a reminder that God is indeed with us. So take that encouragement with you this week, that you are not alone. That there is a God who loves you and is with you every step of the way. And I will challenge you. Do everything you can while you wait. I promise you aren't alone.